it's hard to compare this to anything else bigger than God, I mean, is kind of the way that it feels at the moment. I guess ta- they're calling it Taylor mania, kind of like Beatle mania. But Beatle mania didn't last this long. Taylor is like 15 years into her career at this point. Like the, the pitch of the conversation is higher and higher and higher and higher. Welcome to another episode. My name is Katie. This is Let It Out. A couple months ago, I was served by the YouTube algorithm, a video by someone named Zach that I enjoyed so much that I kept watching more and more and more of his videos until I was eager for him to upload a new video essay. And now it's to the point where I'm all in. And we talk about that in this week's episode because Zach, the person who made that YouTube video is here on the podcast. Turns out Zach is a journalist living in Singapore who makes thoughtful research videos on everyone from Lana Del Rey to Lord to his favorite pop star, Taylor Swift. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that artist, just, you know, Google if you'll you'll figure out who she is. But anyway, he's a longtime Swifty and he even co-hosts a podcast with the incredible writer of the Lizard Review Substack, Madeline, where they go through every single year and break down the career of Taylor Swift. What a time to be interested in Taylor. But Zach has been there since the very beginning and Madeline, and we discuss how he got into the Tumblr fandom, meeting Taylor Swift, how he got into American pop culture. Zach is in Singapore and he went to school in New York City, but he still lives in Singapore. We spoke on Zoom, him from Singapore. It was late in the evening. I was actually in Montreal at the time, early in the morning, and we had this incredible conversation that spans over his career and how he got into doing the work that he's doing. And we talk about in the pop stars that he's researched, something called selective vulnerability and self-mythologizing and how that plays into what he wants to share about himself and, and his work. So it's a really incredible conversation that I loved having and getting the opportunity to connect with a creator that has given me so much joy and entertainment and knowledge this year. So I'm really excited to talk pop culture with Zach and you listening. So like I said, this was recorded just a couple months ago. So, you know, the news cycle moves quick in pop culture. So I hope that this is a interesting conversation that gives you some comfort amidst, you know, everything happening in the world right now, which is incredibly heavy. Here is my conversation with Zach, the Swiftologist. Okay, Zach, I I told you this before we started recording, but I'm so happy you're here. And to be honest with you, I feel a bit overwhelmed because I am so excited to speak with you that I know that you understand this because I, like you, love doing a good deep dive and going down rabbit holes with things. So when I was preparing for this, my rabbit hole was your work and it was lovely. And so I just 
have so much I want to ask you about and so many directions that this could go that I'm, I'm just happy that you're here and excited to see where it ends up. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the space to talk about Swiftologist, evolution of a snake, etc. It can feel very, I'm sure you know this as a podcaster too, it can feel very kind of siloed, I suppose. You spend a lot of time creating and talking in these private small spaces. And you kind of forget that there are people out there listening to it and connecting with it and resonating with it. So yeah, I think this is a really interesting kind of experiment to see. I've never had like an in-depth conversation about it before. So it'll be really interesting to see where that goes. Exclusive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I was wondering about that because on your podcast that I mentioned that you co-host with Madeline, you discuss, as you say, the life and times of Taylor Swift and you Mm -hmm. do thoughtful pop culture about many people and many topics. But for some reason, the the last episode I listened to was 2015. And that was the year this GQ article came out. And it's the Chuck Klosterman interview with her. And I believe it's the last Mm -hmm. print interview she's done and probably (laughs) will ever do. And it was an interesting sort of meta moment because you were talking about how that journalist and and you can definitely explain it better than I can, but I, I reread that article and I was thinking about having this conversation about your work. And then I was thinking since you research people who are in the public eye, and then now you have become in the public eye in your own right, how much do you take in as cautionary tales, how they've been perceived and your own mythology and learn from? Yeah, very interesting question. I think I think a lot of it has to do with this thing called strategic vulnerability, which I, I've mentioned a couple of times. I haven't talked about it in a while, but I have referenced it when talking about Taylor before, which is that, you know, when you want to be a public figure of any description, you have to give some of yourself away. And it's kind of up to you what the parameters of that that release is. And I think it can be, it's very easy to share very little and make it seem like you're sharing a lot. And I think Taylor has is one is a good example of someone who you feel like you know very intimately, but I think there is a very different side to her and an undercurrent that is kept very deliberately away from public view. And I kind of feel like I would do the way that I interact with the internet is probably the same. I remember I did a a series of vlogs last year when my channel was kind of, kind of blowing up. I think I just hit like 10,000 subscribers and that felt like a lot to me at the time. I was really happy. And that was kind of like the first goal that I set, I suppose. And I did this series of vlogs. I went to Tokyo for like a month to do some remote working and I was hanging out there. I was just going to have fun. And my grandfather passed away when I was there. And I happened to just be vlogging in the middle of it because I was trying out vlogging, seeing if I liked it. And it was such a comfort and a a relief to have the camera with me and be able to like vlog at various moments. I found that it really helped me process my grief because I wasn't able to just drop everything and fly from Tokyo to Dublin. Like it just wasn't, that just wasn't realistic. It wasn't going to happen. So I wasn't going to be able to go and be with my family and more. And I was also on this solo trip in like an extremely foreign land, obviously. So I, there was a potential there to fall into a really grave, serious disconnect from like just the world. 
And the vlogging aspect of it really helped me. But once I started putting those vlogs out, the first two were kind of before I found out that my grandfather had passed away. And it was just like, I'm going on a date in Tokyo. And this is my Tokyo boyfriend, like joking about that and like going shopping and showing the sites because I'm I've been to Tokyo many times. It's one of my favorite places. But then obviously, I vlogged all the way through, like literally from the moment that I found out basically, which in hindsight was a mistake. I don't I, I, it helped me to process it in real time. But as soon as I uploaded the vlog where there was like, I was crying in it and all of that, I was like, this is far too much. I don't want to give that to the internet. So I realized, you know, there was a purpose in verbalizing it, in performing it in that way. But there was not a purpose for me in sharing that with the internet. So I took it all down. <laughs> I had like a whole series planned out. I had all the videos edited. I had like three episodes up. And then kind of reflexively, and I'm really glad that I did. I was like, I have to pull this down. So I'm happy to share my most controversial Taylor Swift opinions. That gets me in more hot water than you can imagine. But I'm kind of not really interested in being an influencer in that sense. I don't, I don't wish to give up my life. I still want to be like a person. I don't want to, I don't want to sell myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I'm so sorry about, about your grandfather. And I, I, I think the part that was cathartic was the creation of it because I, and similar to writing a song or writing an essay, there's catharsis in creativity and that release, right? Like the show is called Let It Out. I, I wrote this book that came out several years ago about journaling, also called Let It Out, because I I do think that what we hold on to hurts us in some ways. And especially when there's shame involved in something, I think it's it can be helpful to share it, not with everyone, not publicly, but with someone safe, like a therapist or a close friend or family member. But other than that, sometimes sharing doesn't... I've learned this the hard way by sharing a lot and sharing a lot of my voices on the, the internet too here it's not yours anymore. And then your advice is a form of nostalgia or whatever they say, right? So then you're getting everybody else's Mm -hmm. opinions of it and it's warping what it even felt like in your own mind. And I can just imagine, you know, that, that part of the sharing process not feeling as good as the making process. So it makes me think in a way it was almost the cathartic part was that kind of like journaling. It was kind of processing externally in real time with yourself. And then if you hadn't shared it, if you had just gone into it thinking that it was, you probably wouldn't have done it, you know, but but if you had gone into it thinking this was something you were just going to to do for yourself, would that have would it have stayed in the catharsis? a good question. I mean, I like the idea of, I mean, blogging is kind of journaling, I suppose. Like it is a kind of a release. It's a little bit more constructed, I would say. And the part of it that I really liked was narrativizing it, being able to create like a, this is what I thought was going to happen. This is what actually ended up happening. And this is what I learned from that. Being able to metabolize kind of, I mean, as human beings, we always want to put like a a linear chronology together and have things make sense, even though disparate events exist in this world and almost nothing has anything to do with like one series after another. But in vlogging, you kind of get to have the control over that. I mean, you're the editor, you're the post-production supervisor, you're the cinematographer, you're the talent, you 
you are the, the studio that gets to release the project, you kind of have this godly control over your domain. And I think that situation felt very out of my control. So it was nice to wrangle it back in. But yeah, watch. I think I got through the third episode editing it. And then I was like, I don't, there's, I have all this footage. Like I have hours and hours and hours of videos left to go. There are probably like six more videos in that series, but I don't even want to see the footage. I don't want to watch it back. I'm, but I'm, I, I, I agree that there's was a point to doing it and I don't regret doing it at all because if I hadn't, I don't know that the things that I said and worked through internally, I don't think that those things would have come to me as quickly had I not been sitting down every day and talking to a camera because I was by myself and I was in a country where like I, I was traveling around. I had a couple of friends in Tokyo, but then I went on this like very ambitious two week train journey where I was like basically on a bullet train every other day. So I wouldn't really have had any contact with anyone that even spoke my language. So I was, I was glad for it so that I wasn't getting locked up in my brain about it, if that makes sense. But yeah, the release part of it really was the, just the act of getting it down somehow. Yeah, it's so interesting. I have I have two close friends who have been doing YouTube for over a decade and also do blogging. And it's very different what I do with this, but it's much easier to hide behind. There's bits of me that, that come into this, obviously, but it's really about the other person when I'm interviewing. But it is interesting to have this document of yourself and your life and your, my, I cr- you know, I think we all cringe at old versions of ourselves. And it's very intuitive when I go onto Instagram and I'm archiving things and I'm just like, oh, that's not what I think anymore. That's not, you know, Mm -hmm. and then part of me is like, well, that's so who I was then. It's not something that was even that people thought about 20, 30 years ago because it wasn't available to have that sort of a document of us. And I love what you were saying about creating a narrative and you're so compelling and easy to watch and so smart and hilarious. And I, as a viewer, like I would love to, to see those vlogs, but I'm as someone who now in my parasocial way cares about you. I'm like, Oh yeah, no, that I don't want you to have to think of, give that another thought, you know? So it's this interesting, delicate balance of finding what makes sense for you. And maybe in the future it's, a memoir that you write, or it's a a book, or it's a, maybe they're your vault tracks when your feature film comes out. I don't know. But Mary Carr has that line about how with memoir, you or with nonfiction, I guess, in general, you have the events and then you create meaning where with fiction, you create meaning and then you create the events to go with that. And creating that narrative for ourselves helps us to make sense of all the wildness. (laughs) Yeah, I think the ephemeral nature of the platforms that vlogging exists on takes away what could be the catharsis and the power of creating them just because it's like it's content. It's not there's a difference between content and art, right? Content is something that you consume and you can never have enough of it and it stacks up one on top of the other and it kind of passes over you like a cloud or like a dream or something. Whereas art, I think you're a little bit more like a movie or a little bit more in engaged you have placed more stock you're giving it more attention it's not something that you put on in the background i think that might be where vlogs really don't get to reach their full potential because they have to live on platforms and they, they're subject to algorithms if i'm sure people would be interested in, in some vlogs if i did them but the youtube algorithm would not help me 
reach those people because it doesn't align with what I already regularly put out that people mostly come to you for. And that's something that's very frustrating, I think, about being a creator is that once you pick a niche, you are kind of siloed and segmented into that niche. So any sort of like experimentation or branch out, you kind of get punished by the algorithm a little bit. And then that can be very demoralizing for something like a vlog as well. You're like, wow, I put a lot of effort into this. Or it feels like that was another kind of piece of it as well. I was like, wow, I poured my heart and soul into this. And only like 6,000 people have seen it. And I have more subscribers than that. And my videos usually get twice that. So what is it about this that's wrong? It makes it feel like it's you, like you've, you've done something wrong. But it's the it's kind of the nature of the beast. You have to really work with the tools that you have. And the algorithms are a mystery to you. So you're always kind of guessing what's going to please it. And that unfortunately, in a perfect world, I would just make every video that I wanted to make every week. And I wouldn't care about like how well it does or how it harms or how it can harm my channel if it doesn't do well. But unfortunately, you have to really, every video is like a an educated guess, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and sometimes those guesses don't pay off. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that last night, actually, as I was preparing and I, I was like, I was telling you before, filling in some of the gaps of videos of yours that I had missed. And while you have a focus and, and still have a niche within that, I was wondering, I feel like there are some risks that you still take, especially right now with Taylor Swift, just being at, at this level of fame that I never could have mm -hmm. anticipated, but you're still making videos that are about more general, thoughtful pop culture. And how much do you consider, you know, how like David Bowie says when he started to consider the audience, the work suffered the most? Like, so in your case, how do you wrestle with that in your mind when going into your creative process of coming up with an idea for a video essay? How do you, how do you look at that and come up with ideas in general? It's so hard with YouTube because there are so many things that you need to consider, especially when your channel is in. I'm in a growth spurt, kind of, and have been for the last couple of months. So any sort of deviation away from that could stop my channel from growing. And that that is sometimes that's fine. Sometimes I'm okay with that. But currently, I'm really trying to work as hard as I can, make as much good, high-value content as I possibly can, and reach as many people as I can. So my main concern really is my two main concerns are reaching new people that haven't encountered me yet that might like what I do and keeping the people that have been with me for a long time happy. So those are kind of my first two main priorities. The creativity part of it, like what I want to do is very much secondary to that. I, there are like, I did a Britney Spears blackout deep dive. I loved doing that video. That was incredible. It didn't do very well, but it, I, I am not, I don't regret making it. And I think I've heard a couple of creators talk about this before where you do one video for your current subscribers, one in the schedule, if you're doing it in a month, it's one week, you do a video for your current subscribers and people that you know and love, something that they've seen before, something similar to what they've seen before. Then you do something to reach new people, something that maybe has, I don't know, something that has more keyword reliabilities and it would rank higher in the search engine and then you do something just for you and a lot of creators will stress that the doing the just for you part is actually very important even if you don't do it frequently because it keeps you engaged in things i suppose and i do like to listen to my audience as much as possible and i am very in touch with the people that consume my content i know what they want to see very intuitively i talk to them all the time day in and day out i'm on the discord I'm on Twitter. I'm very accessible to the people that watch my videos. 
which can, is, is a good and a bad thing. Trust me, there, are, there is a downside to being readily available. But I think I like to make sure that I am considering the people that are like building this little village for me or helping me create it. I want to make sure that I'm like giving them something to think about, making them laugh, but also maybe introducing something to them that they haven't thought about before. So it's important for me to do those Brittany videos every once in a while. In terms of things that I kind of just have to kill, like ideas, I would have loved to have talked, done it. I really want to do like a silly but serious video about vanity pop projects. So like albums by artists that are not serious artists that are not serious musicians, but they end up making this kind of like vacant, dead-eyed pop that I think is just so interesting. It's like Addison Rae's EP is kind of what spawned that idea. It reminded me of Paris Hilton's album and Lindsay Lohan's album. And, you know, there are certain other artists that have had these like weird kind of spurts of musical inspiration. Heidi Montag has an album. Like some of them are just, and they're so odd. And I think they're very <laughs> commercial, but they're also about the pageantry and it's uh, the performance of being a pop star, even when you're not a pop star is very interesting to me. So that's an idea that I would love to execute, but I always have to think like, how do I condense that video into a title and a thumbnail? How do I get people to click on that? And if it doesn't immediately resonate with me, if I have to stretch my imagination of how to make it work, and if I have to dilute the idea, then I'll shelve it for a while. It's not to say it's off the table, but I, I need to focus like Olivia Rodrigo's album just came out. That was an easy, I need to do a reaction to that. That's easy. Olivia Rodrigo and Taylor Swift allegedly have a beef. I need to do a video on that because that's, that's the hot topic. People are searching for content about that. And I think I have a unique perspective to share on it, a unique take. So now is the time because Guts has come out, right? There's a lot of traffic around Olivia. So that kind of plays into my decisions a lot. October will be very 1989 heavy. I might do a video on the Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, like beef. So I do the timeliness of it all helps kind of orient the channel a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's something that. I could never keep up with. I studied journalism and I couldn't, the pace of it is so challenging. Yeah. You do it so well and you can really, it, that was so cool to hear your process and you do it so well. And I know you're very engaged with your fans, but as a, a newer fan, I was thinking about this can be sort of a focus group for you, but mm-hmm. this was sort of my trajectory to find you because I'm sitting here being like, you know, in my brain as you're talking, like, fuck the algorithm, do whatever you want. Like, you're brilliant, (laughs) you know? But also, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I literally found you because of the algorithm. Your video just Mm -hmm. popped up on my YouTube one day and I watched it because of things that I had searched and said on my telephone and here I am. And what's interesting is I'm just obviously one person. I'm 33 years old, the age of our Lord, Taylor Swift. <laughs> and mm-hmm. have, I've always sort of oriented my age with her. I went to a, a concert of her. She was opening for someone in Michigan where I'm from. And when I was very, when I was in high school, we were in high school. <laughs> and wow, that's a flex. Isn't that's it? A flex. Isn't it funny? Yeah. But I, but I, you know, went in and out. And of course, this year in particular, I, I wasn't in it, but recently I've just, watch your videos. So at the beginning, when I first subscribed to Swiftologist, that was all I cared about because I had so much to go back to that was really about my fascination with this pop star that you 
were clearly such a scholar of. And then I just completely understood your take. And then I very, very slowly branched out to like, oh, let me check out his podcast. Like, oh, Madeline's incredible too. Like, let me, let me listen to the podcast a little bit. And I don't think it, it was before six months, even before I t- clicked on any other video of yours that wasn't the content I originally came for. And now I'm like a super fan that I literally reached out to talk to you to have you on here. And I've had people say similar things to me where it was like, they just listened when they knew the guest. But then after a while, they were like, I don't care who the guest is. So I think that that trajectory, it makes sense. Like you, even hearing you say all of that, I'm like, oh, that, that worked on me. Now, whatever you put out, I click on because... I'm stoked to hear you talk about what's going on with Olivia Rodrigo or whatever it is, because I know that you're going to have a researched take that is going to be a good use of my time. Anyway, I just thought I'd offer that. (laughs) Yeah, that's super nice. Thank you for saying that. I think it is Yeah, something that I was very worried about at the beginning of the channel was... First of all, how long am I going to be able to talk about Taylor Swift for? How many videos can I truly make? I mean, I laugh at that now because it could go on forever. (laughs) The Taylor is deep and wide and growing every day. But that was kind of my first concern was, will I run out of stuff to say? And the second concern was, will anybody even want to hear what I have to say if it's not about Taylor Swift? And I remember I, I mentioned that in like a live stream or something one time. And a lot of people said that they came for Taylor but stayed because they really liked my perspective. And I think that's something that I understand now is possible to do. It's like a conversion, right? I could get people in the door with Taylor. She's like the marquee. But if I want to sell a ticket to the show, I got to work a little bit harder. And I think that I got really lucky in that when I really doubled down on the content and started, it was probably, I haven't even really been serious about doing YouTube. I started doing weekly videos maybe just over a year ago. And that was like July or September. And as soon as I did, she announced Midnight's. And then everything changed. Like it became the pitch of the conversation around Taylor Swift has altered so drastically. And it altered my fortunes in terms of being a content creator. It Every time there's a spike in interest in her, if I can ride the wave, there's like a peripheral boost for me. And that is interesting in that I am in some cases a bit bound to her, but also a relief to know that there are like slowly, but surely my other videos have started to be as successful as the Taylor Swift videos, which is a good, a good thing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit for, for people and, and myself, you know, I'd love to know the the origin story of this a little bit, because as you say on your channel, you know, you're a journalist by trade, a Swifty by choice. And I love the way you're, able to both celebrate and be critical of some of the choices which, you know, you have this familiarity with her catalog and her capacity, and you're able to take your dynamic, engaging, incredible self and clearly go through both the history of the fandom and then have this journalistic critical perspective. So how did you decide that you were going to name the channel Swiftologist and maybe even take us back further? Of What was your intro to both the fandom and journalism? 
Interesting. Lots of things to unpack there. Let's start with, I guess, meeting Taylor Swift. And yeah, I, 17 questions in one. I, I apologize. Yeah, no worries. I also ask questions like that all the time, especially when I was interviewing sources. But yeah, I encountered Taylor Swift. I mean, it was, I live in Singapore, right? So very far away from the States, but Western culture is very big here. American media was kind of my dominant media consumption. So I was really into Avril Lavigne. She was kind of my favorite person in the world. I really liked Hilary Duff. I always liked the pop girls. I had a Kelly Clarkson phase. And I remember I saw the R song music video on MTV. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I had never heard country music. My parents are Irish. Like they, they don't care for country music. And, you know, this was kind of pre-internet as well. I mean, or dial-up internet. So I wasn't, there were no streaming services. And the radio kind of really only played like your most bog standard pop music. So I'd never encountered country music before. So when I heard our song, I was like, what is that? I just couldn't, the yeehaw of it all, I found it very <laughs> charming and strange. And debut was not actually released in Singapore for until Fearless came out. Like it just wasn't that she wasn't popular enough internationally. So I remember seeing the video and being like, huh, that's interesting. Then when Fearless came out, I remember I saw the Love Story music video before Fearless came out. And I was like, oh, I'm in it. I'm so in it. And when Fearless came out in Singapore, they tacked on four songs from debut in lieu of releasing the album. So I kind of met her in that era and then I probably I followed her through the fearless era and then speak now was when I really really doubled down and like joined the online tumblr fandom and like really started I guess witnessing bearing witness to the building of a legacy I didn't know that I was doing that at the time but I was because I was a teenager I had nothing else to do you know when you're a teenager you and you have internet connection that's everything so I even at school I would be like on my laptop chilling on Tumblr, checking in. And it was perfect for me because, you know, something would be announced at midnight, it would be noon, it would be lunchtime at school, I would be refreshing and keeping up and seeing what was going on. And Tumblr felt like a really private space, a private digital space. So it was there, it was not uniformly positive, I'd say it was mostly positive, but it wasn't like your posts really left your village, your internet village, you were kind of in a safe space. <laughs> Sorry to cough. So that's that's kind of where and how I met Taylor. And then it just escalated from there. In terms of journalism, well, I, I'm a writer, first and foremost. I would say like above being content creator, podcaster, journalist, whatever. I'm a writer. And I feel like that is my sensibility in the world. I studied creative nonfiction at Sarah Lawrence for three years, I want to say three, graduated a year early. So yeah, three years. I always loved writing and like I loved debate, I suppose, in school. I did theater, although I really didn't like it. <laughs> I, I don't I don't like acting or anything like that, but I enjoyed the public speaking element of it. I've always liked a good argument. My parents are excellent arguers. I come from a long history of, on my dad's side, academic, intelligent, feisty Irish people. And our like family pastime is fighting with each other, not in like an aggressive way, but having like, you know, intellectual debates around the dinner table. You really have to like hold your own and create space for yourself and be compelling and be engaging. It's not just having something to say. It's about making everybody want to listen to you. So I think I really internalized that 
because I wanted to be noticed by my family members. I, that side of my family is um, is bigger, and I have cousins. So you know, if you wanted if you wanted to be heard, you had to make a good case to be heard. <laughs> and when I went to school, I like I didn't even know that I wanted to do writing until maybe my like second year of college. I was bumped from a class. I was doing anthropology, which is funny now because that's so I was like like writing ethnographies, et cetera, which is so adjacent to creative writing. That was what I thought I was super passionate about. And then I got bumped from one of those classes and put into a creative nonfiction class and it clicked. It just clicked. And ever since then, um, memoir was something I was super interested in writing. I was really passionate about nonfiction. I did a couple of poetry classes too. And yeah, I loved it. I, I wrote for Man Repeller for a while when I was there. I loved Leandra Medine. I have a very broad media diet too. I consume a lot of different kinds of media, which I think informs the way that I speak, probably. Um, I listen to a lot. I read a lot. I watch a lot. I'm a prolific YouTube watcher. I love YouTube. I always have it on. I'm always watching it. I know what I like, what works, what doesn't work. So that kind of was all percolating, I suppose, mm. in my brain. And then I went, I took a year between college and my master's. And then I did one year of an MFA in creative nonfiction at the new school. And then COVID hit. So because COVID hit, I was in the States and obviously I was on a visa and I just didn't want to get locked out of Singapore because they were going to shut the borders. So I went home to Singapore to be with my parents. And I just decided that the master's was not right for me. I had only another year to go and I wasn't getting what I wanted from the program. And I didn't want to do it virtually because the whole point of it was having a community and a network of other writers. And I felt that that was not possible to replicate digitally. And I think that was the correct choice. So I decided not to continue that. And instead, I got a job as a journalist at an independent media publication in Singapore, which is highly unusual, because all the media in Singapore is state owned. And we have a pretty intense, I mean, they call it a a benevolent dictatorship. We have for sure what I would describe to be and I have to be careful about what I'm saying now. But we have what could be described as an authoritarian government that is that can be extremely suppressive of free speech, shall we say. Free speech is not a right here. And I was thrown into a world, a part of Singapore that I had not experienced growing up. I was kind of isolated in like the expat international kid bubble. Then when I was working, I was really like, I was working with Singaporeans. I was understanding how Singapore worked as a country. And I got a look behind the curtain and it was a lot darker than I thought it was going to be. And I found reporting in Singapore to be the most challenging thing I've ever done. It is so difficult and scary and at times very demoralizing, but so necessary as well. Like you have to do it and you have to make compromises and you have to be so careful about what you say. And it actually, in a, in a weird way, it kind of makes you a better journalist because you are dotting your I's and crossing your T's on every single thing that you say. Even if you do that, it doesn't matter if they decide if, you know, someone decides that what you've said is not in the best interests of the country. So that was super challenging. And I think the main thing I took away from that is like, we need to not follow the dominant conversation, whatever it is. It's always good to have an alternative viewpoint, to have people speaking freely without reservation. And I think that's what led me to the style of content that I create. And I remember when Folklore was announced, I was like, this is so, it was so unprecedented for Taylor to do a surprise album like that. (laughs) And I was so 
curious and afraid of what was going to happen, basically. Like, I just didn't know what to expect. So I was like, you know, I just need to record this just for my own reference to watch it back and see, like, how my opinions on it change over time. And reaction videos were just kind of starting to become a thing. So I did that. I threw it up. I didn't really think about it. And I didn't post anything for another six months. But it just started to pick up in views. And I started to get comments. And then Evermore came out. And I was like, okay, well, let me do another one of these. And then it kind of took off from there. That was an extremely long-winded answer. No, that was perfect. And my chaotic, extremely long-winded, multiple-part question, you you got it all. I have so many threads I want to pull from that. So going back to your deci- your decision to, to leave your master's program and then working in journalism in Singapore, what a wild experience in that creative constraint that is is put on you sounds like it was exceptionally educational more so than what the new school would have been and oh yeah led you to to this which is so incredible i'd love to go back a little bit further even with your your childhood which you got into a little bit but you mentioned you're irish and your parents are irish and you grew up entirely in singapore Yep, born and raised. So I'm curious then your relationship to pop culture and to Tumblr. And and I, I heard you talk about the cozy beginnings of Tumblr and what that allowed for you. And and I think that that might bring us even to meeting Madeline and, and into the early fandom of Taylor Swift and, and beyond and, and meeting some of those, you have an incredible video where you talk about many of the celebrities that you've met, but could you talk a little bit about that time and what Tumblr offered that era? Sure. America was kind of like a magical place to me in my head. It was so, it's so far away from Singapore, first of all. And second of all, it seemed like all of these great things just came from America, like all of these charismatic and intelligent people, lots of these movies and music. The things that I spent my time doing were all American and had America as a backdrop. So that's why my pop culture references are American. I would say I have a pretty deep, intuitive understanding of American pop culture specifically, just because that's what was imported to Singapore, or at least what was shown to me, Disney Channel, et cetera, all of that. So Tumblr was an interesting experience because I think we're kind of replicating what early Tumblr was in our discord on the evolution of a snake. And what I liked so much about it, as I mentioned, was that it was a little bit more anonymous, but not in the Reddit sense where you hide. It wasn't about hiding. It was about really connecting over a specific thing. And who you are doesn't really matter because it's who you show up as that people pay attention to. So the particulars of like your name, where you live, how old you are, all of that is kind of immaterial to what's your favorite song? What era do you claim to be yours? What's your hot take, et cetera. It was more about like how you could craft or build your persona in a space that had a, a set of rules or like a set of expectations. And it was within that that I met Madeline. And Madeline was like the Tumblr star. I was like the new kid on the block and like nobody had like not many followers at all. And Madeline was just so funny and everybody loved Madeline and everybody wanted to know what she had to think about 
anything Taylor related. She was a bit older than me as well. And like when you're younger, those age differences feel big, right? Like when I was 13 and she was 16 or 17, like she's basically an adult to me in my head. So I just thought Madeline was like the coolest. She posted the funniest things. She was always like, I don't know. She's always marched to the beat of her own drum. And that's something that came through so clearly, even, even in a place where you are kind of stripped of all of your identifying factors. Madeline still stuck out to me as a person that was like worth knowing an interesting person that like had something that really drew me to her. And so I think I badgered her into following me back on Tumblr. I just like, I spoke to her as in a familiar fashion enough times that eventually she was like, Oh, I know this person when fully I had gaslit her into believing that we were already friends and we just became friends like that. And I think we've always had a very similar kind of more eyes open, more realized approach to this. And it's more than just me and Madeline that are from that era. Like I have a handful of friends that I have known that long, but Madeline and I randomly decided one day, I listened to a podcast called It's Britney Bitch, which is a year by year, like recollection of Britney Spears's career. And I was like, we could do that for Taylor. In fact, we are the only people that could do that for Taylor, the way that this podcast is doing it. So I was like, why don't we try to do the Taylor equivalent of that? And we did the first episode. Neither of us had any idea what we were getting into. We had no financial incentive to do this. It was like completely and entirely a passion project. We did not have real microphones. I had GarageBand, my AirPods, and a dream. That was truly mm-hmm. the beginning of it. That's all you need. So that's how, yeah, that's all, we, that, and that's all we did need. Those episodes, I would never listen to them back, but they are up there and they are on the internet. 2006 and 2007, that is literally the first pancake. <laughs> that was the first thing we ever made and it's still there. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. No, I love that. And you can tell that your relationship with, her is so genuine. And I think from a podcasting perspective, when there are two co-hosts, that's everything. It's that relationship Mm -hmm. is the most paramount to the success of a project because there's really not an ability to hide that at all because you're spending so much time hearing the two of them speak. And yeah, there's so much mutual admiration i think but between the two of you which is is so great to hear and it's cool yeah, to we have that. fun yeah we exactly. have a lot of fun and i always want to hear what she has to say she's the person that i want to talk to about all of this stuff so i think that comes through quite clearly when we record is that like we get carried away a lot our episodes are really long just because it's fun yeah yeah and that translates it's fun for your audience too speaking for all of them <laughs> Going back to Tumblr, I, I think you said somewhere, I think it was maybe in the your video about Lord or maybe Lana, I think it was maybe about Lana Del Rey, but you were talking about the aesthetic nature of Tumblr and how it became this sort of at that time. And I was much older when Tumblr came out. I was in college, but I had three of them and it was I had a very different experience because it wasn't necessarily in a, in a niche, but I, I don't even know if you remember what I'm referring to, but... Do you happen to remember it was something about the how that aesthetic of that era and kind of the the coolness of it related to the culture that we were seeing at that time? Yeah, I think Tumblr was kind of like a genesis or like a, a breeding ground for popular culture in ways that we've only really come to realize now. Like even the pop punk revival that we're seeing currently 
with people like Olivia Rodrigo, that's very Tumblr informed and Tumblr inspired. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, these, a lot of these niche interests and things were mainstreamed by fervent online fan communities that just kind of naturally ended up spilling into other corners of the internet. And I know that like websites like BuzzFeed, which really like kind of, you know, were the aggregator of culture in that period of time, they pulled a lot of their content from Tumblr. Like they would just go on Tumblr and search like funny gifts or best Coachella outfits or like things to wear or like things that Lana Del Rey says, things, the, the, those kind of compilations. The source for all of that was Tumblr. It's been sad to see the platform kind of like flail and struggle, but I think all of the social platforms are going through a bit of an identity crisis. And I think that the future of the internet is in these localized private spaces like subscriptions, subscription services where you pay to access a specific corner of the internet that has a vibe that's dictated to you, where you are with other people that are on the same wavelength as you, that you can't be brigaded or invaded by trolls. You're not going to be like suddenly having your words like taken out of context and spread around and held against you. It's kind of bringing trust back to the internet, which I think is what Tumblr had a lot of in the first place. And Tumblr driving culture, I think, is probably what eroded that sense of trust to begin with. Mm, That's so well said. Yeah, you articulated something that I've felt, but an experienced. And yeah, I think that's why early Instagram, even of uh, in the niches that I was in, it just felt more less performative and more kind of what you were describing a little bit at the beginning with with vlogging even cathartic and like a community like an actual community where it just has become further and artful further. Too, yeah. yeah yeah and then the massive nature of it means it's like uh, you're not speaking to anybody because you're speaking to everyone including your like old teacher and the person you met that one time and you know your mom or whoever it, it mm-hmm. it's hard to to manage that i are you an only child? Do you have siblings? I am an only child. I think that is an energy that carries through all of my content. Re- well, I I am as well, <laughs> and I'm. I always talk about that with people. My many friends who are as well. Do you think that informs your? You say informs your content, but your relationship to art and culture and the things that you consumed, even back when you were a kid. Oh, for sure. And I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about. When you're an only child, you have to entertain yourself. (laughs) It's up to you to make sure that you're engaged. I mean, your parents are there, obviously, and like you have friends and all of that. But a lot of the time, like you are kind of making it up as you go along. And that's something I'm so grateful for. I'm very comfortable, happy, confident in my own company. I love solo traveling. I love to be with myself. I'm comfortable being with myself. Sometimes it can be uncomfortable. Sometimes there are things you don't want to look at. With yourself when you sit all the time and you can maybe lean into a withdrawal a little bit but i think the way out of that for sure is to be, be curious and be creative and i think that the reason why i'm so invested in pop culture and like i try to have this intuitive understanding of the way that people think and i try to be empathetic is because i spent a lot of time watching and observing and i think that that helps as the journalist, as a writer, as a creator, being aware of what's going on around you. And the best way to do that is to read a book, like to literally insert yourself into someone else's perspective or watch a movie and try and like piece through what people are experiencing or listen to a song and try and apply that to your life. You spend a lot of time like with your headphones in listening as a kid. I traveled a lot when I was a kid too. So I would always have like a 
a Walkman with me, like a CD player. And I would, I would bring, I could only bring like four or five CDs. So what would I bring? I would listen to them over and over again. And I would like have certain songs I would want to, and it was kind of a production to skip around through a CD, right? Like you couldn't just, it wasn't just like tapping the screen and heading through. So I had to be like very, I guess, selective about what media I wanted to consume. And being an only child, I think, yeah, you have to just make your own fun. Yeah. How encouraging were your parents or, or are your parents of your <laughs> culture intake? Because you said that country music was not for them, but were what were they listening to or did that inform any of your... Because I often think of this and, and I'm curious if this is something that has impacted you. But when I was growing up, it seemed like most of the people around me... I didn't know very many other only children. As a grown-up, I have many... It's odd how many of my friends happen to be only children, but I always thought I was behind in knowing cool things or knowing culture, knowing like vintage things because I didn't have an older sibling and my parents weren't into music. And I don't know if that's just true or my own take on something, but yeah, do you relate to that or what did you know other only children growing up? Like how much did your friends impact your taste too? You know, almost not at all. And this is where I think that I was a very strange child. I have always had a very strong sense of what I like and don't like. And I am not very easily swayed by what other people like or don't like. It's almost irrelevant to me when it comes to me deciding like what I want to listen to, what I want to. And it has been for so long. Like I was I was the kid that was obsessed with Avril Lavigne, the like 10 year old boy that like would like obsessed with Avril Lavigne, would talk about her all the time, wear her shirts, like draw little pictures of her in class. Like that wasn't a very advantageous thing for me to do. I could have pretended to like something else, but it never occurred to me. I would get upset if people made fun of me for it, but it never occurred to me to hide it or that it wasn't cool or to change it or to suppress it. I kind of was very guns blazing about that. And my parents also were super supportive of like that. Anything that I was interested in, they were like, we're happy that you have an interest in something. And, you know, they bought me a signed photo of Avril Lavigne and it was like Mm -hmm. the best birthday gift ever that kind of thing so I think in terms of what my parents were listening to my dad was very into like classic rock he loves the Rolling Stones um he loves the Clash Depeche Mode um some Britpop too we really he he showed me like the Eagles I liked some of that I was as a kid I was more of a song person i wasn't an artist i would there would be certain songs that my parents would play that i would love so dead flowers is a rolling stone song that my dad and i used to sing in the car um and my mom loved abba that was her favorite abba crab pleaser really good robbie williams she loved him uk legend um kylie minogue she was really popping at the time and my mom loved madonna and i think that was interesting to me because when i started listening to britney my mom was like oh this is so like Madonna. And I was like, no, it's not like that old hag that you listen to. This is completely brand new and you wouldn't understand it. But she was right. It was very like Madonna. What do they think of of Taylor Swift? Have you gotten them, you know, and what do they think of your your channel or do you how much of your work do you share with your parents? Because it seems like you have a close relationship with them and mention them from time to time. I'm very, yeah, I'm very close with my parents. Um, they are super invested in Swiftologist. <laughs> my mom less so, 
but my dad is like all over it. He loves all my videos. Aww. It's kind of embarrassing. He like send them to people. <laughs> so you nice. have to watch Zach's video on the Royal. Family. I'm like, no, dad, we don't need to be doing that. But he's very, he's very proud. And they really, they're very proud of like the, yeah, just the, the commitment that went into like building yeah. it to be the way that it is. And Taylor, they've just been waterboarded with her. They have no choice but to like her. Like she is, she is the sun in our house. Like she's just around. So they're they're very familiar with her, and they have been for a long time. I would say they actually aren't familiar with the new stuff. I think their awareness probably ends at about 1989 because that's when I moved out. So like after that, they weren't hearing the songs all the time. So they know they know what she's doing. I wouldn't say they like know her songs, but they know that the ears tour is happening. They know that there's a movie coming out all of that. Like they're very abreast. Do you think you'll go see the movie with them? Probably not. I'm going to try and take my mom to the tour next year. They both want to go. But as you know, tickets are very hard to get. And I have two tickets to one Singapore show. So it's going to be, they're going to have to fight. Rock, paper, scissors. I'm kind of leaning towards my dad because my dad is the one that's like super invested and he's more of a muso. Like he's really into live music. So I think that he would appreciate it in that sense a little bit more. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. But wow. Oh, that, that makes me so happy. And I mean, I feel, feel the same, even though I'm, I'm newer to, to Swiftologists than they are, of course, but I, I'm sending your videos. I'm, I mean, yeah, I think the video that I came in on was her speech at NYU and, and your very thoughtful take on that. And then I think the one that you were mentioning when you read, I was going to say Harry Styles, Harry, he doesn't have a last name, Harry Pri- Harry the Prince. Yeah, Prince um, Harry. Prince Harry. When you read his book, so so we don't have to, and you know, expanded from there, and it it truly is the the work ethic and the amount of of work and time that that goes into the, these videos is both very clear. However, you make it seem so effortless and fun to watch, even though you're learning so much through what you're sharing. And we spoke a little bit about the pace of pop culture and journalism and the keeping up with the nature of your business, both chasing the algorithm and just journalistically and pop culture. And it moves so fast and you seem to really thrive in it. How do you take care of yourself within that? And and do, do you thrive in it? Do you have any other practices or habits? I'm just honestly really curious about your life and how you spend your days to get yourself to exist in the world and then also make these incredibly well-researched, thoughtful videos that are fast. You're making them weekly and keeping up with your life. So so what are some things that you do to exist within that? Such an interesting question. I think a lot of the times, because I'm sure, I think if you spend enough time with my content, you eventually realize that I actually don't share that much of my actual life. I, I keep that fairly separate to what I do. I kind of just like appear and deliver my commentary and go and I'll do some Instagram stories, but I'm not like keeping people abreast of what's going on. And I like it that way. But in terms of uh, a self-care routine, I mean, my entire enterprise is sponsored by Ritalin. (laughs) That (laughs) was a game changer. I mean, getting an ADHD diagnosis completely changed my life and allowed me to be allows me to be so much more productive than I ever have been. And I go back and forth about stimulants. It's it's such a fraught conversation and there are so many different angles from which you can go at it. But 
I've come to, I, I did go through a bit of a naturopath, like, oh, I need to not take any medication. I need to be like unmedicated and pure and perfect. But my life is better when I take my ADHD medication. My life is easier. I have an easier time existing. I don't, I'm very chaotic, I would say otherwise, like very scatterbrained mess just like accumulates wherever I go. I, I can't really, I can function without it. Obviously I did for most of my life, but it has made the world of difference. And the, the, the pace that I keep with my YouTube channel just wouldn't be possible without that. Being able to sit down at a computer for more than two hours and edit is even when I take my medication challenging, I have to take breaks, I have to do other stuff. Like I'm a real multitasker in that sense. But I would never get a video done <laughs> if I didn't take Ritalin, even in the middle of doing the setup and like making sure that my camera is fine and like troubleshooting problems as they come while also trying to hit all all the points that I have to hit, it depends if I'm doing a scripted video or an unscripted video. It the, the medication is a really important part of that. And yeah, I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. I went through a period of time where I was like, oh, am I a drug addict? <laughs> I really was like, am I taking drugs? Is that is that what I'm doing? Am I getting high to do my work? But that's not how it feels to me. I just feel normal. I don't feel high when I do it. I feel like myself, but myself with a clearer focus. So that is like, in terms of a product, a productivity perspective, that's very important to me. I'm very physically active because I need the endorphins. Like I, I think my, my natural disposition is quite mellow, which may be shocking to some people, but I'm actually quite, I don't want to say soft-spoken, but I'm more reserved if you encountered me in public I don't love talking to strangers. <laughs> I'm not the most talkative person in the world outside of what I do. I think that's because I have to save a lot of energy for what I do. So I don't have a lot to give to like strangers and like random people that I meet on the street, etc. So I have a gym that I really love, like a cool, expensive, which is not great, but it's a, a gym membership that is like a holistic, like a wellness space. And I go there every day. And I, I lift, I do yoga, I do hit classes, I do I do a sauna and a cold plunge about twice a week. That is also a game changer. Nature's antidepressant is a hot and a cold therapy. That is really, it's great. So I do that. And then I, I used to be so into yoga. I've fallen out of that as of late just because I only have time to do so many things. But I love to meditate where I can. I am esoteric. I like to cleanse my space. I sage in Palo Santo on Sundays, get all the energy moving. I also I've recently I've been exploring Marianne Williamson. Mm -hmm. And I know she's like a meme and a joke, but I listened to Return to Love and it gave me some interesting insights. So I would say I'm spiritually curious. That's something that keeps me engaged and recharged. I'll try any kind of like weird, wacky wellness thing. And yeah, I like to keep active. I try not to, it's going to sound so boring, but I try not to drink very much because I just find that it like throws me off my schedule and my life so intensely. And as I've gotten older, I started to realize like, like how much social life revolves around drinking. And that is a conscious decision that I've been making to like really be intentional about my decisions, like not just to have a drink for the sake of having a drink. I've never really been a drinker, but I think that has been very key as well to keeping me on a, on a good pace. So, yeah. Wow. That this is, this is incredible. I really appreciate you sharing all of that because, you know, I, I'm so interested in habits and routines of, of people that I, especially when I am engaged with their work and you haven't shared about 
a lot of that. And I, I relate to so, so much of it. It was funnily enough, I, this production we're doing right now started as a wellness when, you know, it was a very different time. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. It was back. Yeah. Yeah. I was very wellness focused and yeah, Marianne Williamson and the whole, the, that whole. This week's episode is brought to you by The Narrative Method. So I recently met a punk rock singer turned psychotherapist who created a model and movement for human connection. The Narrative Method is a nonprofit run by my neighbor, actually Micah, and it uses creative expression to connect us more deeply to ourselves and to each other. It has so much in common with this show, with Let It Out, and you'll be hearing a lot more about The Narrative Method in these next coming weeks and the founder the punk rock singer turned psychotherapist sherry is going to be on the show very very soon but in the meantime you should check out their proven science-based methodology that's rooted in their 12 core concepts through going to a workshop going to a salon they're on zoom five of them take place every single week i will be at one this week it's a totally judgment-free place and it's actually a free environment in the money way too because it's completely free to come to a salon no cost just sign up join a free salon they've got writing ones they've got conversation ones it's your call head over to the narrativemethod.org sign up and let the narrative method help you with your loneliness help you with your creative blocks and help you get better at being yourself i truly am so grateful that this organization exists and that they're partnering with us. It's incredible. They've done over 1,500 workshops with 30,000 plus participants. It's an experience that I think you'll really love. And again, it's completely free. So give it a go. Check it out again, the narrativemethod.org and sign up for a salon this week or whenever it works in your schedule. Five free salons happen every single week. It's more than just community. It's people connecting through their lived experiences and tapping into their creativity and engaging with empathy with each other. We love that. We love it. Thank you so much. Back to the show. Well, I, I, there's a there's a question actually from Michelle. Michelle's incredible and has holisticism and I actually worked with her on, on producing that show as well. And and I do this segment of the show called Asking for a Friend, or I've been doing it recently where I have our mutual friends ask questions when I have mutual friends with with people. And you and I don't have any mutual friends yet. However, I sent Michelle many a video and she is also one of your parasocial friends. So her question kind of mirrored a, a question that I had for you, which is about research. And I would love to hear about your research process from idea to to video essay. And I'd been writing down in my phone questions for you over when we decided we were doing this. And one of them is is about that of how do you slowly jot down notes over time? Do you compile things and then go through it all in one day? And then similarly, this is what Michelle asks, but she said, I would love to know about his research and composition process for a video essay. Does he have a thesis he is set out to prove when he starts, or does he figure it out while he's creating? 
Great question. Scripting and research is my least favorite part of the gig because I know how it's supposed to go in my head. Like I have an idea of the finished project. I know exactly what it's going to be, but the process of getting there can be, this is where the ADHD part really becomes a challenge for me. I don't love putting together a content outline and I have to do that for a video essay. It's essential. I think I let it come to me when I'm doing an unscripted video. The unscripted videos are truly, I hit record and I see what happens. And so basically any kind of more casual, like the, all the Maddie Healy videos that I've done, the ones about his relationships, reaction videos, question and answers, those are all unscripted. But the I think what you're asking more specifically about are the more constructed videos that I do that have a format and like have a, a thesis or a point to prove. So I have an idea in my head of how I want it to be. And I know what points I want to hit. And then I have to find my corroborating evidence. I think the traditional way that research would work is that you start kind of looking around a subject and you come to a conclusion. But I kind of probably do it in a way that is not journalistically sound, where I have a point that I want to prove. And I'll find my supporting evidence based off of that. I'm always subject to having my opinion changed. And I try to be open to that always because I'm never married to one point of view. I'm very fickle in that sense that you know if I can find a better argument or if I think something makes more sense, I will totally accept or interrogate that even if it's something that I don't like. I'm still interested to hear what it is. So I would say I'm kind of trying to think about like how I'm trying to think if I could pick one video. They all emerge differently. I, I do have a couple of notes in my phone where I just write down like fragments of thoughts. And I find that very helpful to come back to. I was on a ferry the other day for three hours and I had no internet. And I've been dragging my heels on my Norman fucking Rockwell Lana Del Rey video essay and people are begging for it at this point. So I need to get it done. And I know what it's going to say, but Lana is such an intricate, complex artist that, and she is an artist who takes her time And when I approach my Lana content, I need to take my time. It can't be the way that I do my other content where I force it out or I have a set date. It needs to come to me. I need to feel inspired by it. I need to be in the place of whatever video it is that I'm making about her work because her work is very, it's tough to approach. It's difficult to analyze. She's a really complex character. She's a talented writer, but she's very, I would say private but also messy so it's kind of doing the research for lana is very difficult because it's she's all over the place and the public's perception of her has changed a lot over time and then the work itself is very dense like norman fucking rockwell is a crazy album it's about so many different things to me that album is the end of the 2010s pop decadence it is the, the closing chapter of one era of pop music and There's one song on it called The Greatest, and I could do a whole video on that song alone. But I was listening to that song on the ferry, and then I just started writing the script. So I'll start with a hook, like my thesis, I suppose, the hook for the video, uh, something that makes people not click away, essentially. The first minute of the video needs to be very captivating. So I work hard at that first minute, and then from there, I'll do a setup, a layup. I kind of set it, I I approach it to a a very similar way to how I used to approach writing my, my stories when I was a journalist. Point evidence analysis, obviously, that would be the kind of structure of each section of the video. But I like to play with form and play with different ways to go about things. I like it to be organized and I like to take the viewer through 
my thought process. It's not just, well, here's an idea. And then what about this? And what about that? I want to take them on a journey and I want to arrive at a destination. It's not just like a rambling kind of, well, this, that, the other thing. I want to be clear and direct about what I feel. And if, if, you're, if you feel differently, that's great. But I'm going to do my best to win you over and make you feel what I feel about something. So the process is different for each and every video. But sometimes, I mean, a lot of people say they prefer my videos that are unscripted. But when I'm when I'm really doing my ologist work where I need to be investigating something, I write it out entirely. And that's why the scripts take so long. A lot of people I know just do bullet points prompts, but I prefer if I'm going to do a script, I then it's all thought through, right? Then I just need to read it basically. But I don't know if that's the right way to do it. I'm still playing with the, the execution of it all. Well, it all works for me. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, it, it, uh, I'm, I'm very malleable. What you were saying at the beginning of you didn't, t- I take on the taste of other, maybe not the taste, but I'm, I'm like very susceptible to join a cult. <laughs> like you, you, yeah. you're, you prove me. And I'm like, Oh, I'm in. I'm in. I trust you. I don't even need to hear the rest. <laughs> Whatever you say. It's, mm-hmm. it's not great, but I love that. I love to hear behind a little bit of how you go through it in the structure. And yeah, that, that's so cool. You, one of your videos from, last year is about the top culture moments of 2022. I'm curious if you have one or two that you think would make that video if you do it this year for 2023 that that stuck out to you that you can could give us. Great question. I think, well, the Eras tour is pretty, pretty obviously, I think, a highlight of the year. It's completely changed the way that we interact with live music. It's brought back live music in a way that was so sorely needed. I think Prince Harry's book was pretty, that was pretty incredible. Free Britney. Did that happen last year? Or was that this year? I think that might have been last year. As you're saying all of uh, Prince Harry's too, I was like, I can't, I can't Mm -hmm. believe it's September. (laughs) It happens. Everything has happened so fast this year. Like this year really is speeding away. Britney's book is coming out next month. And that's something to watch for sure. I think that Britney is constantly challenging how we perceive mentally ill people and how we receive freedom and how we expect women to behave in public, especially as they age out of a desirability category. I think Britney's story has been very interesting to follow this year. I think maybe like the, I'm trying to think of other things that have happened. Something I'm glad to hear is that the Kardashians are not even really a factor in that there's nothing to unpack there. I mean, if I was going through, I scanned of all, I don't know if you're a Bravo fan, but that was, that was a pop culture moment for sure. The Vanderpump rules drama, but that's kind of niche and siloed. I would say I'm the Ariana Grande cheating thing is up there. That's been a moment. This Olivia and Taylor beef that's brewing, how that's going to develop over time. That's also a moment. Yeah. I think, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to think on the spot in hindsight. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for that. That Thank you for that preview. I'm excited for the video when it, at the end of the year, early next year, it's, you got a lot to work with there, I guess. <laughs> oh, so much, too much. Well, you mentioned this a little bit, and I just want to get into at least a little bit before we wrap up the 
what you do and what you do so well, one of the many things, you know, dissecting the life and times of your favorite pop persona, Taylor Swift, and you've been following her work for a long time as a historian. But as you mentioned, this year has felt so different from any other. And she's had this massive impact globally. And you mentioned how it has affected you as a content creator. I would love to hear a little bit more about that. And did you anticipate this? I mean, obviously you knew the new album was coming up. Could you have ever imagined this level of fame and domination that that she's at? And I don't <laughs> think we have a precedent for this, but it, if you have a historical reference or equivalent, it's, yeah, I mean, it's perplexing to me. I think about this on a daily basis. It's very hard for me to comprehend the scope of the Taylor Swift operation at this point. And it is frightening. It is a little bit scary because there is always an equal and opposite reaction. And there will be some sort of consequence for her from this. And I think that will only become clear as it happens. And unfortunately, because I chronicle it, I'm going to have to deal with the the brunt of that, whatever it is. Um, So I can see a couple of things bubbling up. The thing that I think is interesting about Taylor now that I've seen a couple of people mention is that she's almost doing anti-competitive business practice by being this dominant in the music industry. And it's not that she just randomly became this successful this year. There are a number of things that were done. The the way that she has gained the charts by doing these like endless single drops and like pointless remixes. The point of a, a chart is to show and reflect what the public is interested in and what's moving and driving the culture. If you're only going number one because the most rabid of your fan base are insisting on buying 85 copies of an acoustic remix of a song that's been out for three months, that to me is not fair for the other artists who are having their moment. It stops other people from being able to have a moment. And that's something that I don't like about the direction that the bigness of this is taking. And to a certain extent, it's out of her hands. It's bigger than her. It, I mean, it has been bigger than her always, but at this point, it really is beyond her. And we don't, we're not going to have access to her again the way that we have before. That, that saddens me as a fan because I, I probably feel more distant from Taylor than I ever have. And that's a crazy thing to say because I obviously have my own parasocial relationship with Taylor. But the way that she's operated this year has at times very much confounded me. And I always feel like I can kind of know what she's going to do next. And I, I do eventually, like I, I can adapt to whatever she's doing, but she has surprised me multiple times this year. So I think in terms of a precedent, I mean, the only thing I can compare Taylor Swift to is Taylor Swift. I mean, her last apex was 1989 and everybody always said that that was as big as it was ever going to be. And it was as big as any pop album was ever going to be in this current crop of pop stars. And a lot of people don't like the Beyonce comparison. And it's true, there is no really no point in comparing them because they exist in different spaces. But Taylor is much bigger than Beyonce. But by, by a country mile, she is global in a way that no other pop star is or has been. And I think that's what's so impressive, but also concerning about it is that I don't see how any other artist is going to have a fair shake at 
making an impact when one person is sucking up all the air in the room. And usually what Taylor does is when she's on tour, she kind of lays low and lets the tour speak for itself. But this tour has taken over culture. It, it is TikTok. There are people that don't don't interact with Taylor, don't search Taylor, that are obsessed with the Eras tour, that have been fed all of this content. It's this manufactured hype. And again, that the Eras tour hype was manufactured by fans. Taylor had almost nothing to do with that. Dressing up, going to the shows, trading friendship bracelets, doing Eras-inspired looks. Those are all things that she sanctions and, and loves, but they were not mandates. And it didn't have to go that way. And it didn't have to become a cultural thing the way that it has and make random people feel so badly to miss out on being able to go to a show. So there, there's hard, it's hard to compare this to anything else bigger than God, I mean, is kind of the way that it feels at the moment. I guess they're calling it Taylor mania, kind of like Beatle mania. But Beatle mania didn't last this long. Taylor is like 15 years into her career at this point. Like the, the pitch of the conversation is higher and higher and higher and higher. So I don't know where she goes from here, to be honest. It's a little bit scary. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, I'm curious how much other Taylor Swift content you you consume, but related, I, there was a, and I wonder if you heard this, but there, the New York Times on the podcast did two episodes, two weeks in a row on Swift and on the Eras tour and just more generally. But they said that they hoped that the neck or they anticipated the next show, whatever she does, the next tour would be comparing it to this, even if it did a tiny bit less, would mm. be bad or she wouldn't like. So she would do a more intimate, like smaller singer songwriter situation. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Or do you, do you listen to that content or like what, what's your take with that? Sometimes I'm half convinced these people are taking my talking points because I've said that multiple times. <laughs> what I was yeah, like, I, I don't trust anybody unless times. it's you on this subject. <laughs> there are, it's weird, but I would, yeah, I mean, I think I've, I can't remember what video it was. I think I was talking about, it was a video about the Euros tour. My wish and hope for her is that she does like some sort of Kate Bush residency, no phones allowed, small theater, experimental production, only new material. That is where I want touring to go next. She needs a reset. She needs a break. And we need to focus on the new. We need to refocus on the new. She's too young to be getting caught up in being a nostalgia act. And it makes sense for her because of the re-recordings. But after that, we need to go back to having the old Taylors being dead. And we need to move on to new stuff. And the tours need to be focused around the new material. And we need to get back to... She needs to challenge herself. She has not musically challenged herself in a, in a while. So I'm ready for her to, <clears throat> and of course I know she's very capable of this, which is why I want to see her do it. I want her to take a risk. You know, she needs to be, be hungry again. And I think you can only have so many accolades, right? Surely I ask myself about the, about her and about this all the time. Where does it go? Like, when is it enough? And I think that different should be the goal now, not more. It should be additional. What can I do instead rather than what can I do on top of what I'm doing? And to answer your question about what other Taylor Swift content I consume, almost none. I consume Taylor Swift content from Taylor Swift. I create my content and I, I'll read like factual information about, like I read the, the Puck, Puck, is it called Puck News, Puck Report? They broke the Scooter Braun story about him ditching all, all his 
clients ditching him. But they wrote a really interesting behind the scenes piece about the financials behind how the Eras Tour movie worked because Taylor independently financed it and she bypassed the need for a studio for distribution by going directly to the cinema. That stuff I eat up. I will eat up anything that has to do with her like business decisions, something that is written by a journalist that is not a fan or is, or is not trying to come up with an opinion about her because I don't need to hear other people's opinions about Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah. And you said that somewhere, I remember you saying that one of the things that she never gives us access to is her business side of her and her choices mm-hmm. in, in that realm. So so that makes sense of, of going there. Something that I keep going back to when I consume your content is the role of criticism and your what everything you just described about how what you'd like to see in the Kate Bush stuff to me I'm sitting here I don't know anything about anything but I'm like that sounds so great she should definitely do that absolutely but also do we think she will and then this is where my brain goes and I've been thinking about this every time I watch one of your videos, and I'm sure you get this all the time. I know she's aware of you. You've met her several times. And I just keep being like, I wish she would just hire you as an advisor <laughs> or a publicist. Like, there's a, you could just do such great work for the world. <laughs> Have you ever thought of that? Yeah. Or do people tell you that? I get that is my, probably my top comment that I get is you should work on her team. She should hire you. And it's an interesting question because I'd say my main gripe with Taylor is that she's a revisionist historian. I don't like it when she tries to pretend like something is the way that it isn't. So I think that I would find that challenging working for her. To What's, What do you mean by that? So she will try and present. So actually, I'll give you an example. So today we recorded 2017 part one for Evolution Snake and a persistent myth that she has peddled is that during to to make the reputation era sound more dramatic and to make the cancellation seem more dramatic and drastic than it actually was it had almost zero financial or business impact on her at all but to make it seem like more of a challenge and to place herself more kind of squarely in a victim space she says nobody physically saw me for a year and when I was putting the show notes together which is a very in-depth exercise that takes months and months and months that is the most head-wrecking task, I could see that there was not even a three-month gap between physical appearances of her. But this was a marketing line that she repeated over and over and over again. It was in the Reputation magazines. She said it in very like several moving interviews of Miss Americana, which is one of the worst celebrity documentaries of all time because of how micromanaged it is and because of how dishonest it is presented as. Um, so I find that's such a small thing to not tell the truth about, right? Like to that's such a weird, weird hill to die on, weird lie to tell, so easily disproven, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. Truth is not relevant. It doesn't, it doesn't affect the point that she was making, but it actually, it is really important to the point because what that obscures is that the cancellation was much shorter and much less, much less, actionably consequential than she would have you believe it's a better story to make it seem more dramatic so i understand that and i could i feel like i could certainly help her craft narratives like that like narrativize things that are not flattering and make them more flattering but what i love so much about being a taylor swift fan is 
being able to read between the lines and like, see, I think she's very complicated. I think she's a very unreliable narrator. And I find that so interesting. So I would only help her clam up if I went on her team. I would help her seem more perfect. And I don't know that she needs that. I, I want a little bit unraveling. I'm a little bit more interested in the messier side of her. But yeah, I mean, obviously, if she said, please come work for me, I would. But at this point, I'm on a blacklist. I've said too many things that you're not supposed to say. So that's never going to happen. You know too much, which is, you know, probably the what you both want and 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 don't want. But yeah, it's can you give an example of when you were like, I would help her do that? Do you have it? Do you have one top of mind? Oh, like an example of something that I would change? Yes, exactly. I would currently intervene with the way that she's handling this Olivia Rodrigo thing. I would fix that real quick because that is not going to end well for her or for Olivia Rodrigo. Summation. I mean, there has been a hostility between the two of them that is very obvious if you read between the lines, but many people want to deny. I think. So what happened was Olivia Rodrigo wrote the song Deja Vu and retroactively Taylor Swift was kind of all of a sudden given writing credits because some people said that the bridge of it was similar to Cruel Summer. I completely disagree. That characterization was that that it was a strong enough resemblance for Taylor to deserve writing credits, much less get 50% of the royalties. That seems extremely vulturistic and opportunistic and something that she didn't need to do. She didn't have to do that to a brand new artist, much less an 18-year-old girl. Olivia's cardinal sin was comparing herself to Taylor accidentally. She just loves Taylor a lot. And Taylor, as an artist, really informed any young girl that is a songwriter entering into the music industry will have been shaped in some way by Taylor Swift at this point. Olivia was very gracious about that, but also fawning to the point where it got to Olivia Rodrigo is the next Taylor Swift. And as soon as she got stuck with that accusation, she was in Taylor Swift's crosshairs because I think Taylor has an anxiety about aging out of being a pop star. We see this very clearly in love in the Miss Americana documentary where she's talking about how after lover, she's going to be 30, which to her is like 80 in her brain at the time. And she's going to slowly disappear from the public consciousness and just write songs for other people. I don't think that Taylor herself imagined that she would have this longevity, this success at this point in her career. Folklore changed everything. And that was obviously a, a distant dream on the horizon. So I think she had resigned herself to being like, I'm okay with not being the most relevant person in the world. But really, she wasn't okay with that. And when she realized that it was a possibility to still be the most relevant person in the world, that became extremely important to her. Having a young ingenue who does what you do and cites you as a reference and it is really successful, having that person enter the arena when you are still building yourself up again is, I mean, she's a businesswoman. She, this is, this is a business decision. It is not smart for Taylor to shine her light on a competitive, a, a competitive product. It doesn't make sense for her to be like, Oh yes, Olivia is my heir and I will bless her and give her the keys to the castle. I mean, the song, nothing new pretty directly states that she has an anxiety and a complex about being replaced by a young, a young girl. So I think the way that Taylor has handled it punitively by demanding credits. Now, there's no proof that she did that. But, you know, if you read between the lines, if you read the interviews with the producer that worked with Olivia, it's very clear that 
And Taylor never, she never gets her hands dirty, right? So I doubt that any of this came from Taylor. It all came from her team. So Taylor's team has behaved in a way that I think has made Olivia Rodrigo feel scared and feel upset. And I think that that's wrong. And I think that eventually that's going to come out and Olivia is going to say something at some point and it's going to make Taylor look bad because what she's doing actually is that <laughs> it's not good to, you know, punch down, which is what I think she's doing. And as I said before, she sometimes has the tendency to suck up the air in the room. And I think that if I were her, I would stop deliberate because what she's done also is she's deliberately highlighted other artists that are Olivia's age and in Olivia's bracket that are of no threat to her. People like Gracie Abrams, people like Sabrina Carpenter, these girls who, no offense to them, don't have it. They are fads. They will not, they are not good writers. They are nice girls making serviceable music, but they are not that talented as a writer. Olivia Rodrigo has it. She has the charisma. She has the, the X factor and it takes one to know one. Taylor understands that and she's afraid of it. That's, that's my intuitive read of that. And it's okay to be afraid of it, but I think she needs to embrace it because she cannot fight it forever. And the more nonchalant she is about Olivia and the more, because she keeps saying things like Gracie Abrams is my direct heir. She, her songwriting is so similar to mine. And that's insulting to my intelligence. Cause I'm like, Taylor, you know, that's not a good song. You know, this girl can't write songs for shit. She's a Nepo baby. Like she writes plain, boring ballads and you could write circles around her. It's an insult to you to say that this girl is your next heir. You know damn well who your heir is and you will not acknowledge her because you're scared she's going to come for the crown. That really is, I think, the animating thing that is behind this this discourse. This is good prep because I'm making a video on this tomorrow. Yeah, well, and I just watched, I mean, not to say that your video will be out by this time that this is, so I'll direct people there, but that song that you you didn't have in your reaction video to the, the at the day we're recording this, Olivia Rodrigo's second album just came out and, and Zach did an incredible reaction video to it. But there was a song that you didn't, you forgot to Fortuitously listen. skipped over. Yeah. Well. As soon as I saw that, I was waiting. I was because Michelle had sent me the song earlier in the day. And then when I saw your reaction video, I sent her the clip of, I just took a video on my phone of you being like, I missed this song. So, but I'm just assuming that song is, so that is where it's coming out. And you agree with the, the take that song is about Taylor? Well, it's interesting because it is, I understand, reductive to be like, this song is about this, this song is about that. I right. like to think of songs as composite sketches. And Taylor is very much a composite sketch artist. She has many songs that, like Question, for example. That song could be about eight different things, and it probably is about eight different things. I don't think that Olivia would be brave enough or dumb enough to directly write a song about Taylor Swift at this point. It would not go well for her. Anything she does is already being read into. It's unfortunate that the Taylor beef is overshadowing this incredible album of hers, but that's the nature of the beast when you're dealing with someone who is the apex predator. I think that there are lines in that song that I think speak very truly to how she feels about Taylor and I don't blame her. And I think that she should be forthcoming about it if she wants to be. But I think it would be a mistake. It's not going to end well for her if she directs it, if she addresses it directly at this point. Taylor yeah. is currently at this literal exact moment, just too big. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I said to Michelle. I was like, there's no way that she would write 
a song, but then I listened to it and I was like, oh, that's so, that's so heartbreaking. So in a perfect world, is it a can't beat them, join them sort of situation? What would Taylor do? What would the olive branch be? This is maybe I'm stepping on the, the toes of your upcoming video. What would that look like? I can't, my brain is stuck, unable to conceive of, of that. I don't, yeah, it's difficult. I don't know what the, what the solution to it would be because there are things that were done that can't be undone. I would, if I were her right now, I would post guts on my Instagram story and I would say, congratulations, this is a great album. She doesn't need to go any deeper than that. She just needs to signal that she's not being punitive because she lately has been posting a lot of albums for a lot of different artists. And you're going to conspicuously, inconspicuously see that she will not say a word about guts. She's deliberately not saying anything about it. And she deliberately didn't invite Olivia to open for her on the Ears tour. There are a number of things that she shouldn't have done and ways she shouldn't have handled this. I think the first step towards maybe salvaging this relationship would be removing her writing credit from Deja Vu. She needs to release her claim to the royalties, and she can do that. She's fully able to do that. She doesn't need to do it. She did that to flex her power and to intimidate Olivia. That is my honest feeling about why she did that. And I think the most simple and straightforward way to just kind of settle the score would be to remove that. And if she removed that and didn't acknowledge Olivia ever again, I think that would be enough. But she needs to dial back the trying to divert attention away from Olivia to other people because cream rises to the top. Taylor can ignore her all she wants and spotlight other what she thinks to be lesser competing artists all she wants. But Olivia is a star and she's going to keep being a star. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because part of me is like, well, if she just posted it on her Instagram story, people would probably be like, oh, well, this is very calculated and she's just doing this because there's always something, but she's got to just start it would fix somewhere. The standards. It would yeah. fix the, the conversation. But it's also, it serves Taylor for their beef to overshadow Olivia's album because it makes the album less successful and it makes her less of a threat to Taylor, you know? Right. So that's why I'm saying you're not going to see an Instagram story because I don't think that she's in a generous space. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and this relates to one other thing I wanted to ask you about her. There, I think it was your video of, around the merch store and you were doing a window shop of the merch store about how this relationship that we're being sold with Taylor is one way and the merch store's high turnover shows that we are really just consumers to Taylor Swift. And I think what you're speaking about here speaks to that as well, this sort of fascination with us and this level of power. And also too, you've mentioned that in how I know she talks to her mom and doesn't go to therapy. And there's some of these like, her life is so unbelievable and inconceivable, this level of power it's just there. It, it's pretty wild. How do you make sense of it? And do you think that's kind of part of what the Eras tour, part of what we're all so fascinated by, and how this is morphed? Dominance, I think, is her driving, motivating factor. It always has been, and it's one of the most interesting parts of her character. Vengeance, eye for an eye, karma, comeuppance, justice. These are things that she's very invested in, and. A lot of people like point to her as like this evil capitalist and like, yes, I understand she is extremely profit driven. But in my view, 
she's not profit driven because she wants to be rich or because she wants to like own stuff. She's not very flashy. She never has been a very flashy celebrity. You don't see her wearing like, she wears a lot of like the row, obviously, which is extremely expensive, but it's, she's certainly a quiet luxury kind of person. She's not really, she's not like the Kardashians. She's not a flexor. She's not showing you the inside of her home. She's not telling you what car she drives. She's not going on all these lavish vacations and telling you about them. She's very kind of protective of being relatable and normal. What I think she uses money for is for power. That's what she really wants. She wants power. She wants to be able to control what people say about her. Ultimately, that is the main goal is to be so powerful and so intimidating that everyone will agree with what she says and offer her no resistance or pushback. And that's maybe reading into it a little bit too much, but the way that she's orchestrated this last year it makes sense that she's power focused when her agency was so violently disrupted by having her master recordings taken away from her. That's her life's work. That's every that I gave my blood, sweat and tears for this. She says it herself. It is everything to her and to have that taken away from her and to be humiliated in public by these two men who had absolutely no hand in creating this legacy that is so important to so many people, so many women to see that happen. I think relit a fire in her to become as powerful as she possibly could so that she could punish the people that that made this happen to her. The Eras Tour to me is a, a dominance flex. It's to show that you cannot keep me down. I will, I will, I will be the supreme. My re-recordings project, I mean the whole purpose of that is to be powerful. So I would say that's kind of the the main the main motivator ever since she lost control of her masters has been, I need to get, I need to get them back metaphorically. Mm, yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for all of the time that you've, you've given me. I have a couple of rapid fire questions. Can I, can I give you those before we, I let you go to sleep? <laughs> go for it. Okay. With what you said there, her main motivator, what would your main motivator be? Mm. In life or making content or both. I know it's a life it's to be a, happy. It's a That's tough. simple, easy. She want to be happy, and for making content, I think to surprise people. Mm. Where do you see your career going, or what are some of your hopes and dreams, and you're working towards? Oh God, I have no idea. I mean, I always wanted to write books. That's kind of like the ultimate goal, I suppose. But that's on the back burner because I found something more interesting, more engaging to me at this current moment. I mean, I still have a nine to five. That's the other piece of the puzzle. I work in corporate advertising, but I don't want to do that. That's not a career for me. I don't want to do that. So I am at a point where I could quit that and just do content, but I'm a little scared. I'm a little scared too. I want to ride this year out and see how it goes. I want the ears toward to end so I get a better sense of what's going on. And then, yeah, I, w- I would like to, to have freedom to go wherever and do whatever and not be bound to one place. So a career that facilitates that is my ideal thing. Yeah, I I always think about I, I worked a full time job and <laughs> this all on the side of it. And there was this line that Elizabeth Gilbert says, I think in Big Magic, but she always says how she never wanted to put pressure on the creative work to make her money. And she wanted to until she knew. And I, and I always, even though it's frustrating and you can be 
wanting to push to the freedom part. And then there's also like having gotten to the part where I, I don't have the full-time job and I have a freelance life. Like there's downsides to that too, of no health yeah. insurance and inconsistent money. So it's like, there's, there's both sides of have pros and cons, like anything, but I'm, I'm excited to read and watch anything you do next. Similar to the question about pop culture, what are some things that, that you've learned this year generally and between your work and, and life? I need to be very careful about reserving my energy. I need to not give it away all the time. I need to keep some things for myself. That would be kind of the first lesson, I suppose. And also that, you know, if it's meant to be, it will be. That sounds so simple, but what's meant for you will come and you can't hurry it along. Mm, Yeah, it's a good one. Your style is so unique. The way you make videos and the way you articulate things, of course, is so unique. But you mentioned that you watch a lot of YouTube videos and you take in so much content. Where do you go for inspiration? Was there anyone doing something in the vein of what you're doing that you were watching that really expanded you to see what was possible for yourself? Oh, absolutely. There are two YouTubers that really inspired my content. First is ContraPoints. She makes these incredible, elaborate, complex video essays. And they're mostly about things, subjects that I would not touch, like hardcore philosophy, political philosophy, that kind of thing. Things that I'm interested in hearing about and and maybe writing about, but not discussing. It's certainly not in public. But the style of her videos is very engaging, very academic. And also, she has an extremely high production value. And that's what I admire the most about it was the ability to deliver these kind of very dry missives in an entertaining way. And also to like, she builds all these custom sets for every video and she only puts out like two videos a year because they require a lot of heavy lifting. And I kind of aspire to that. I would love to have one of my video essays be so impactful that I would only need to release one a month or one every couple of months. So I loved that about her and Kimberly Nicole Foster is probably my favorite creator ever. She just is such an eloquent wordsmith. She has the most incredible command of the English language. And she covers high, low, everything in between. So she has a main channel called For Harriet, which is like a black feminist space. And obviously, that's not a subject that's like directly applicable to me. But she is a super engaging and compelling speaker. And she does her research. She does incredible research, actually. And She always comes very prepared to every topic that she wants to talk about, but she's funny and she's fun and she's charismatic. And she also keeps a lot of her private life offline. And I like that. And then she has a more silly channel where she talks about like the real housewives and she loves um, like Chloe and Hallie. She talks about uh, Chloe's pop music endeavors and she'll do a video on um, Madonna and why Madonna uh, is like not currently defying age conventions by giving into this standard to be beautiful all the time it's yeah she has a very broad inspiration list and she's super eloquent and i'd say she's probably the main reference point that i have for what i do Mm, so cool what about general inspiration you i I noticed a poster of a booby we both love behind you when we got on this call but what are some of your canon what are some film or books or tv or anything that you love that that you go back to or have loved recently that you want to share 
I love Sofia Coppola just in general. I love the dreaminess of her works. I love movies where nothing happens, which is kind of, or like, like it, it just washes over you or passes by you, but leaves a mark. I really love that, which is kind of weird because my content is kind of not, not really like that. It's, it's definitely more like I have a point and, and a thing and a message. And what I love about Sofia Coppola is like the space to dream in all of her work, like the room to breathe. I love Lost in Translation, obviously, you know, cause I love Tokyo. I spent a lot of time there. That's a really important movie to me. I love The Virgin Suicides. We talked about that. Great. I love the book too. In terms of writers, Joan Didion is like my North Star. She's another person that I really look to for her command of language and her economy of words. She really carefully and concisely constructs her sentences. And I really respect her approach. She makes me sit up straighter in my chair and pay more attention to what I'm doing. She makes me not want to be lazy with what I do. So I love that. Yeah, those two, I'd say, are are two pretty different, but very formative inspirations for me. Do you think you'd ever do a video on Coppola or Didion? Oh, I would love to, but again, it would tank. (laughs) No one would watch that. That could be just for me. (laughs) (laughs) As you were talking, that's just where my my brain went. Um, Duly noted. I would love to make a video about Sofia Coppola. Someday. Wow. Well... What about the role of criticism, you know, within fandom and just in general? And and this has come up from time to time in your work where mm-hmm. things that were said about especially young female artists could years ago could never be said now. And it's complicated. But where do you sit there? As one. As one. That's interesting. I mean, my number one goal when I am discussing any artist or person really is to be empathetic And I think that's something that people sometimes don't understand about my work. I am snarky and I am, I can be a little like rude. I suppose it can come across as a little direct, but that is, that's the entertaining part. That's the engaging part. That's the part that keeps you watching to listen to what I have to say. And usually what I have to say is I really try and see, see people as people like complex beings that, that can be right and can be wrong at the same time. And, can do terrible things and not be purely evil and similarly can create great work and not be a good person. I try and like hold space for the the breadth of being a human. I think when I'm approaching criticism and I, I try to always, I, ne- I never want to come at something with bad faith. And if I don't like something, I will tell you that I don't like it. And that will help you inform like whether you think that my opinion of something is valid or not. I'll be very straightforward with you about something um, and why I'm saying something. Sometimes I just don't like something and I don't have a good reason for it. And I'll always say that. I'll be like, this song, this person, this artist just does not vibe with me. It's not my thing. And I have nothing else to say. So I think, yeah, when I come criticism, I always try and make it constructive too. Like I was very critical of Olivia Rodrigo's first album, Sour. I was very critical of that. I didn't like it very much. But I said to her, I would love to see her go the Avril Lavigne, Paramore, Fiona Apple, really dig into that Alanis Morissette, the, 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 the teenage, the female rage, Courtney Love. And, you know, I saw that very clearly come through on guts. And I think that I certainly in my video gave her the flowers that she deserved. She listened to you. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe so. Probably <laughs> not, but who knows? Well, uh, what about any cultural critics or, or people who... Is there anyone's criticism that has inspired you similarly to the other examples that you've given? 
I like Laura Snapes. I'm always interested in what she has to say. She writes for The Guardian sometimes. I really like John Karaminka, The New York Times. I think he hosts that podcast. Yeah, yeah. About. He might be one of the hosts of that. I really loved his review of Reputation. Actually, that sticks out in my brain as being a particularly acute and good review. Sam Sadomsky writes for Pitchfork. I always like what he has to say. Actually, I don't know if, if what their gender is. I actually don't like I've never investigated the person. I think I think it's a he, but I'm not 100% sure. But I love that. And Gia Tolentino is like one of my favorite cultural critics, like outside of music. I just love her essay on Instagram face was so what I want to do with my work, which is like put voice to something that everybody thinks and knows, but hasn't yet been able to articulate. So I, I, I didn't really love her book, but I love her essay collections. I'll read anything that she writes basically. Mm. So many good ones. So many favorites of mine too. When one last thing, you know, Taylor related, when you think about, and this has come up in, especially in, in red, and you've spoken about this a, a bit too, of like, being being her same age, I think this is something that I I think about. But when there's this sort of uh, aloof coolness that I was certainly chasing and still still chase of the you know indie record much cooler than mine sort of thing, and when a lot of the artists and the friends and people I surround myself with on a daily basis, I don't talk about. Taylor Swift, I mean, you know, she comes up because of right now, she's sort of everywhere, but I, you know, and I'll be like, I actually love her, like, but I don't really get into it. And I think there are a lot of people my age or in my world and have been that, that are kind of not embarrassed, but it's just, it's not our identity. Yeah, exactly. So how do I, and I'm a horrible debater. I clam Mm. up. I don't like doing it. I know. I feel like I, because I've watched every single one of your videos, I know a decent amount just by that. I have the prime historian. Yeah. You got the Swiftology down. Yeah. Like I could make an impact in my little (laughs) group. Not that she needs it. But but how would you suggest our because you have a you have an excellent video where you have a friend of yours who's just not a fan and you're like, I'm gonna intro you to Taylor Swift and it's funny and but that's a different thing than what I'm describing. I I guess, yeah, how do you have advice for or do you have advice for someone coming out as a because I that's something I've really been trying to orient my life towards of like not chasing cool. Like I am warm, I am yeah. not that. Yeah, yeah. How do you wrestle with that? I think Taylor Swift wrestles with this problem all the time, and she constantly is trying to affect coolness. I mean, look, just looking at her street style from this year, she's definitely trying to, like, adhere to some form of what cool is going on right now. And I would say there are a couple of avenues you can take when you're coming out as a Swifty. You can go straight for the emotional aspect of it, which is something that people cannot argue with, which is that Taylor Swift is an effective, prolific, emotional communicator and she speaks directly about experiences that are personal but also universally applicable which instantly makes her a good writer that's that's a great thing that she does and you are lying if you're saying that you've never been moved by a taylor swift song no one on this earth that has listened to her can say that they never heard a lyric or a song and went well down i think all too well is your first port of call for something that you're talking about the 10 minute version the the 10 minute version 
and side by side with the five minute version is a masterclass in editing in songwriting in taste in knowing exactly what you're doing and effectively communicating a message always lean on her writing that's always something that i would go straight for is that she's first and foremost a writer she's a businesswoman and a product and a musician everything second first and foremost she writes lyrics second thing that you can go for is i actually don't care what you think and you, if you are deliberately saying that you, if you're being in opposition to Taylor Swift, you don't like her because she's everywhere. That's a fair reason, but just say so. It doesn't have to be she's bad. You can't in good faith say that she's bad. I just don't think that you can. You can say that you don't like her, but you can't say that she's bad or that she's not good at what she does. And I guess the last attitude that you can have is, yeah, just to be like earnest about the fact that you do like her. It doesn't matter whether other people do, right? Like if you... If you enjoy it, it, it speaks for itself and it doesn't reflect poorly on anyone to enjoy something that's very popular. I think that's, it's not even about Taylor. It's about the fact that so many people like her, that she's so mainstream. It's like saying, oh my God, I'm a huge fan of McDonald's. Like <laughs> it's a thing that kind of everybody has right. a relationship with. So what makes your relationship with it so special? And I would lean on the personal element of it. Be like, I just like it a lot and it makes me happy and it makes me feel good. And I am not in the business of denying myself pleasures. There's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Yeah, totally. Thank you. That was such a self-serving question. I think the way I, I usually go for it is, or recently, you know, it was it was right around my birthday this year when she said that at the Eras tour. Thank you so much for being here. I'm 33 years old, which is 174 in pop star years or whatever. And I was turning 33 like that day. And I think it just hit me like, oh shit, we're, that's the age that we are. Who knew, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I, you know, I've kind of orient, that's kind of my way I usually say it is because that's the other part you that say you've grown up with her. Honestly, that would be a yeah. good thing to say. Yeah. And the, the thing that, you know, you've kind of alluded to is this age piece. And I, I, that's what I keep asking people about too is, do you have a celebrity that you orient time with too? Because I think that I, when I've asked that question to friends, it's made for an interesting conversation because I have friend, really close friends of mine are in their fifties. I have close friends in their forties and I have a lot of close friends of mine who are younger than me as well in their twenties. And, you know, it, it's interesting if they, do you have one who's like your age you orient time with or it, maybe it happens um, later? I, I don't know, but does that resonate to yeah, you? Lord. Oh yeah. There Lord, you go. And See? I have the same age. So I yeah. kind of, I keep an eye out. When she went through her whole faux spiritual revival, I was like, in there, in yeah. there. And it didn't yeah. work out. Yes, been there. Yeah, I, I felt that way too. With I watched that video. I'd kind of been saving the Lord video. Like I didn't let myself, that would have been the first one I went into. And I didn't let, allow myself, I was like rationing it until last night when I was like, well, now I have to, it's like for work. <laughs> but I finally let myself watch that video. And yeah, what you said about her wellness culture kind of critiques, everything you said was just everything I was feeling, but hadn't articulated to myself about that album. Yeah, melodrama is such that, that to me, that really oriented my being 19 and on fire kind of vibe, you know? I yeah. felt really connected to that. So that's definitely a, a video essay for the future. Melodrama, love letter. Oh, I'm very excited for that. Yeah. S similarly with the age thing, there was something that, that Swift said in Miss Americana about how stars or celebrities get stuck in the age that they were when they got famous. And I'm clearly not famous, but I do feel 
behind. I mean, every everyone often people feel behind and and I think our I think being in your 30s is an interesting decade especially because it's so different depending on where I mean maybe all the decades are where you are but it's you're expected to be more set up than in your 20s as as every decade you are and I'm that's been challenging for me and then there's like the physicality of it being a woman and and you know when melodrama came out I was older obviously but I felt I felt the same way. That was such an exhilarating... I think I had just moved to New York and that was a really exhilarating period in my life. And so that's what's so cool what music can do regardless of age, regardless of era. It can, I was really having that experience last night listening to, listening to Olivia Rodrigo and then also having this sort of mm-hmm. like feeling... I have that with movies too where I... You're just used to watching movies about teens or watching movies about people in their 20s and all these rom-coms that I grew up on. And then now I'm older than the main characters or I keep thinking about 13 going on 30. Yeah, yeah. I think Guts was very odd for me because it was like, wow, I'm beyond this almost. Not that I'm above it, but I'm beyond this. It's not made for me. And I think when you're a teen, what you don't realize is everything's made for you. Like all culture is created with the teenager in mind. So the rest of your life is kind of being like, well, do I just stick with what felt true to me when I was a teen? The media that came out for me when I was a teen, do I try and project being a teen onto the new teens or the new teen oriented stuff? Or do do I somehow try and find something that feels more true to where I am now? The third option is kind of harder, but I think a mix of all the three kind of puts you in an interesting spot. Yeah. And can you, do you think you can enjoy art that's clear like i was listening to guts and i was like i want to listen to this all the time it's even though it's not for you like yeah of course i guess i'm that's maybe a silly question but do you think you'll listen to it even though you had that thought about it that's a really good question i was thinking about that today actually i was listening i was listening to it again in the car and there are a couple of songs like I can really see get him back going into my rotation because it's just so fun silly love is embarrassing is also great where I struggle with Olivia is the soppy ballads I can't really honestly say that I'm going to revisit a lot of that just because it feels it feels like an experience that I've had before I've already done my soppy, plain ballads with very simple like lyric writing. When I'm looking for a ballad now, I'm more in the vein of a folklore and evermore. I want to be challenged a little bit. If it's slow, if it's sleepy, you have to keep me engaged somehow, right? So I need some really original writing. That's why I love Lana. I don't think Olivia has quite gotten there yet. So those songs will probably fall out of my rotation. As in with Sour, there are only four songs off of that record that I listen to and the rest of it I will never listen to again. And I think I think my success rate that I put guts at was about fifty five percent. So there were like seven songs that I can see myself revisiting. So that's a good that's a good benchmark. But yeah, I don't. I th- some of it is too teenage girl for me, and that's not a knock on on the content. It's just not for me. Yeah, yeah, same, totally. And that that was my favorite. Get him back too. That oh, so good and and so applies. Good. I'm thirty three years old and applies to my life I right know. now. <laughs> I was I was like and it's such a relatable feeling to want someone back but also want to punish them. Yeah. Them yeah, yeah, it's like a stage of of grief and anger. 
Wow. Well, God, I mean, this is incredible. I was so nervous for this one. I was so nervous to talk to you. And I I don't think I, you know, knocked it out of the park interview-wise, but you did. You were incredible. And it was so wonderful to speak to you, Zach. And I was so nervous because truly your your content has been such a wonderful part of my life this year. And it would have been such a bummer. And I know you've experienced this and we didn't really get into it, but you know, when you mentioned how much you loved Avril Lavigne and and you your experience meeting her was not great. And I was I knew you would be wonderful, but I was really I was like, oh man, if if I have a negative experience meeting Zach, how will I love his videos as much. And so thank you so much for being so kind to me and and taking all the time that you did. I, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the space to kind of verbalize because I don't talk a lot about what what it is that I do. I don't think about it out loud. So this is a really interesting exercise. Also great to hear from someone who like watches the content. I feel like a lot of the times the feedback that I'm hearing is from quite young people, maybe in their teens. So it's certainly affirming to hear that like smart, mature people such as yourself are also enjoying my content and watching it and are engaged in it and see the value in it. So I really appreciate that. And you did a great job with the interview. You asked really good questions. You clearly did your research. So no shame in your interview game. And thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And anytime you want to come back when the book comes out, I'm going to read it and <laughs> you'll be, I, I hope that you'll be back and who knows what, what we'll be doing then. Maybe there'll be a new Tumblr of sorts and who knows what podcasting will be, but I appreciate you. And, and yeah, let's, let's keep in touch and everyone listening. I'll, we'll have all the links and everyone will hopefully get in, get in on what I have spent so much time with and, and love so much. Okay, that was my episode with Zach. If you like this episode, let us know. Comment on my Instagram and on Zach's Instagram, the microphone. And what we're really saying with the microphone is cricket, which is a catchphrase of Zach's that I love. And listen to the Evolution of a Snake podcast. It's incredible. I think you'll really be thoroughly entertained. I think you'll learn a lot. And they have a Patreon, which not to brag, but I am a member of. So if you'd like to join me there, support them. I think that would be a lovely idea. And hopefully they come back. Maybe Madeline as well. Madeline writes an incredible substack that I mentioned, The Lizard Review, which I'm also a subscriber of. And The Swiftologist YouTube. Sign up. Get the notifications. <laughs> Watch his videos. They're, they're incredible. And it's Zach's birthday. So happy birthday to Zach. I hope you're listening to 1989 and enjoying it. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. And thank you so much for doing the podcast if you are listening to this. All right. If you want to hear more from me, I have a Substack as well. It's called Let It Out Lists and feel free to join. I'm also at Katie Dalebout on Instagram and this podcast has an Instagram itself. It's called Let It Out with three T's. It's also me. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>